Today's scripture readings from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Thank you, John. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Okay. All right. I think we can build off of that. We have a little bit of momentum going, a little excitement. Glad you guys are here. Hope you had a good Christmas. Yeah? Did you? I need some more uh, audience plants, but thank you, John. Well, today we're in week six of our ongoing series on Luke, and in case you've Missed it if you haven't been here. Uh, let me bring you up to speed. Jesus was born. Six weeks. That's all. That's all we've gotten to so far. Not kidding. We uh, we spent the f- first week. Week one was uh, Zechariah and the angel. Uh, maybe you remember the the theme was um, listen when God speaks, but then stop talking. And we 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 talked about how. Um, Zechariah questioned God and was silenced from that. Week two, we talked about Mary and the angel and the phases of of faith that we go to, um, all the way from from terror to acceptance and submission. In week three, we talked about Mary's song, uh, the greatest Christmas carol uh, ever, and uh, that was also the week that we saw just how human Ryan Holiday can be. I don't know if you were there. You you remember that? Um, then then last week we talked about 
the manger, um, the absurdity of God here on earth as a baby, um, but the absurdity, but then also, of course, of course God chooses to do that. Uh, that's, that's how God acts and surprises us. And then on Christmas Eve, we talked about uh, the shepherds and the, the experience of uh, the glory of the Lord on them. So here we are, week six. Uh, we've got past the birth. Now we're, today we're going to talk about Simeon and Anna. And uh, really what we're going to be looking at today is um, the, the convergence of these characters all meeting the Christ. Um, and the delivery of an unexpected message that's kind of, in a sense, it's a prophetic wake-up call um, pointing to the destiny of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the text a little bit. You know, this this series is kind of a study of the Scripture. So first, we'll spend a little bit of time in the text. Then we're going to talk about the mode and the message. Uh, So let let me pray, and then we'll get into it. God, thank you for the truth that we find in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your scripture, uh, that there would be new insight for us, and uh, that we wouldn't just be learning things, God, but that we'd really grow in our connection with you. I pray that we would experience you today, that uh, we would feel your love, that we would know that you're real, and that you would have a, a message specific to each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first of all, uh, the text itself. Uh, John just read it for us. It's kind of a long one today, but there are some pretty interesting things in there. So I, I want to just walk through it a little bit, pointing out a few things that uh, maybe on first reading we, we would miss out on. Uh, so so the, the passage starts with the circumcision of Jesus. Uh, this would happen on the eighth day. Uh, this still happens today. I'm, I'm sure all of us have... Jewish friends, this is what's called a bris, right? On the eighth day, the the boy is circumcised and named, and literally for thousands of years now, this has been happening. A young Jewish boy is circumcised, and then there's a, there's kind of a gap. There isn't. This doesn't happen right away. It says uh, the time of preparation. Usually, this would be forty days. So we're not really sure. Maybe they hung out in Bethlehem. Maybe they went back to Galilee. We're we're not. Totally sure, but after 40 days, they come back to the temple in Jerusalem to perform these important rituals, um, the consecration of the firstborn. And this dates back to to Exodus, uh, when the Spirit of God passes over uh, the firstborn of Israel. So the Egyptians and the the cattle, the firstborn male is struck down uh, by the Spirit of death, Uh, but the Israelites' firstborn was spared. So ever since then, this has been... um, or ceremony, a ritual practice to to consecrate the firstborn back to God. So that's what they're doing. And uh, we read that they're bringing the offering of uh, a pair of pigeons or a pair of doves. That was a, a poor person's offering. Normally, for those who had the resources, they would sacrifice a lamb. But if you didn't have a lamb, uh, there's kind of a, there, there's a, a stipulation in the book of Leviticus saying that if you're poor, if you can't afford the lamb, you can do... Uh, two doves or two pigeons. So Mary and Joseph were poor. We've kind of seen this already, right? They they couldn't they couldn't afford an inn. There was no place, so they, they went in a stable. They're they're normal working class people. They're the working poor. That's the the family that Jesus is born into. And then when they get to Jerusalem and they're in the temple, this interesting thing happens with a guy named Simeon. And we don't know too much about him. We we know that he 
is righteous and devout. And the, the way I envision this happening is they walk into the temple and this guy literally comes up and like snatches the baby out of their arms. It, it's kind of, I mean, that's, that's what the text seems to be saying. It's kind of weird, but Simeon isn't like a priest. The text doesn't say he's a priest. So this is not like a normal thing. It's not like you walk in with your baby and this guy takes him and starts saying these, these prophecies. This was, this was unique and bizarre. Not, not the priest who is performing the ceremony. That's why they came for the consecration. But Simeon intercepts them, takes the kid, and starts saying these, these prophetic things. Um, we're going to talk more in depth about the message, but just something that was interesting. He says, in the sight of all nations... Um, I, my eyes have seen your salvation that's been prepared in the sight of all nations. So here they are in the temple of Jerusalem. So for a first century Jew, this is, this is the epicenter of religious life. This is where the sacrifices happen, where the ceremonies happen. People from all over congregate there at the temple. There aren't, it's not like there's multiple churches. There's one temple. So here they are at the epicenter and Simeon saying, in the sight of all nations. Well, here they are at the center and Two people recognize him, Simeon and Anna, the only ones who recognize him for the Christ, as the Christ. So Simeon says these things about Jesus, prophecy about him, and then a message specific to Mary. And that's kind of more where, where the wake-up call is. Those are some things that are a little bit shocking, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So after, after Simeon, another woman, this old woman, Anna, who's also righteous and devout, uh, she comes over and kind of seconds what Simeon just said. She says, everything he said, I agree with. So she's this old, old woman. She's been a widow. She spends her life in the temple and comes over. And basically, she's a prophet also. She says, everything he said is true. And kind of begs the question, well, why, why is she even in there? Like, we don't learn anything new from her. There's no quotation from her. Why include Anna? And I have, a, I have a few thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I think it's significant that she's a woman. Uh, so far in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Elizabeth and Mary are, are kind of central figures um, in the narrative. And now we see this, this old woman who, in that culture, would kind of be dismissed, who comes up and she's a second the only, only the second person to say this is the Christ. And then maybe more importantly, Luke, as we said earlier, he's kind of an investigative journalist, right? He's, he's searching for the facts. He's, a, he's recording a historical account. And in the, the Jewish law, it said that if there's the testimony of two people, then it can be trustworthy. So just one person is kind of a suspect, right? We're not sure if we can believe one person. But if two people testify to something, then it's admissible in a court of law. We know that this is a true thing. So the fact that Anna kind of agrees with what Simeon's saying is proof positive that this is, this is a trustworthy saying. Uh, the text also says that um, Anna said, all these, th- said these things uh, to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And we, we don't really get a sense of how many people that is. We kind of get the sense it's just whoever's milling about the temple. It's not like there's a crowd of people all anticipating this. Two people recognize who he is, and anyone who's there who would listen, they're like, hey, this person's important. Um, and then when Mary and Joseph did everything required from the law, they, they go home. 
And uh, the, the reading concludes with, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And the fact that Jesus grew is pretty remarkable too. It kind of it points to the extent to which Christ really emptied himself uh, by coming to the earth as a human being and, and especially as a baby. Um, he emptied himself to the point that he needed to grow. Jesus wasn't just born with a complete uh, knowledge of, of the scripture. He didn't have the scripture memorized. He had to grow and learn like a normal human being. So that's, that's kind of a, just a synopsis of the text. Uh, the two things I really wanted to focus on this morning, though, were the mode and the message. So the mode, specifically three modes of spiritual activity, three modes of obedience or of practice, and really three modes that led to the convergence of these characters. So three distinct modes, three distinct sets of characters that led all of them to be at the temple at that specific historic time and place. So number one, uh, the first mode of, of spiritual activity was just obedience to the law. And we see this in, in Mary and Joseph. Um, if you look on the back, I should say that, on the back of your program you have the reading too if you, if you want to look at that. Um, so the first mode, obedience to the law. The first uh, three verses, we see it repeated over and over again. Uh, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, as it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male should be consecrated. And to offer a, sac- a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord. And then Mary and Joseph stay until they fulfilled everything required by the law. So Mary and Joseph were doing exactly what they were expected to do. They were doing what the law of the Lord commanded. It's what, what any Jewish family would have done, fulfilling the law. And um, for us as Christians, this, there, there's a lot of misconceptions about our relationship to the law. Um, a lot of times we think, well, law is bad, grace is good. We think that if, we're, if we focus too much on obeying the commands, that we're somehow perverting the truth of the gospel, as if they're, they're diametrically opposed to each other. And that's, that's not really what we see in Scripture. Uh, in fact, uh, in Galatians it says, uh, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And then in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So if anything, Jesus, Jesus came to clarify the meaning of the law. Jesus came to help us get to the heart of what the law means. So if you think about like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say unto you, it's not a big deal. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I do not, the, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus didn't say, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. I say to you, well, that would be legalistic. You know, you can, you can kind of do whatever you want because you're under grace. He said, no, no, I say to you, don't even be angry with someone. If you call someone a fool, you're subject to judgment. So Jesus isn't just throwing the law out. He's clarifying what it means. He's helping us get to the heart of the law. Um, I like the I like the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because there's a danger in becoming legalistic doesn't mean that we should totally dismiss the law. 
Uh, and certainly we don't see in Scripture the idea that we're supposed to do that. Uh, so for us as Christians, if, I'm not saying we should go back to, to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and study all the Old Testament laws uh, and live our lives by those. Uh, but Jesus gives us some pretty clear commandments about uh, what it looks like to live a life devoted to him. Uh, so obedience to the law, that's kind of the, the minimum expectation. That's like the lowest thing we can do. We can at least follow the rules. And uh, this obedience to, to the commands, it doesn't make us righteous, but it does make us mature. It doesn't make us right in front of God, but it's a sign of maturity where we can obey what Jesus has taught us to do. This is kind of the minimum expectation. It's not a special status for like the ultra-holy Christian. This is the minimum. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my teachings. So that's the, the first mode of, it, of spiritual behavior. Mary and Joseph end up at the temple because they're obeying what the law says. Now, the second mode is the practice of spiritual disciplines. And this we see uh, with Anna. And I, I should say, if you want, you can kind of think of these as sequential, like the, the easiest moving to the hardest. Uh, obviously, our, our spiritual lives aren't that simple, but if it's helpful, you can think about it that way. So the second mode is the practice of spiritual disciplines. Uh, we see this in the prophet Anna. Um, the, the text says, verse 37, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. So Anna was in the temple practicing spiritual disciplines. So what are, what are spiritual disciplines? Well, obviously, we see the ones that she's doing, fasting, praying, worship. Uh, spiritual disciplines also include things like the study of scripture, uh, solitude, meditation, serving, generosity, Sabbath, anything that we do to help us connect with God. Those are spiritual disciplines. Uh, they're habits that we cultivate in our life that promote spiritual health and spiritual growth. So more than just obedience to the rules, spiritual disciplines are things that we actively do to connect with God. And the main objective of the spiritual discipline is to create a little bit of space in our lives for God to show up. A spiritual discipline is us carving out some space in our lives for God to be present. Uh, the great spiritual author and teacher Henry Nouwen says this about spiritual di disciplines. He says, in the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Discipline means to prevent anything in your life from, I'm sorry, discipline means to prevent everything in your life from being filled up. Discipline means that somewhere you're not occupied and certainly not preoccupied. In the spiritual life, discipline means to create that space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. So discipline is anything that creates space in our life. Most of us are so either occupied or preoccupied that we're just pushing God out. God wants to show up in our lives. God wants to be present, but we're, we're so full already that we're not even open to, to his presence. So discipline is a habit that we develop to create that space. So maybe you guys remember a few months ago, uh, one of our ministry leaders, Sally Whitman, came up, and she talked about how um, for this past year, she's been giving 30 minutes of her day, every day, uh, to spend reading and praying. And I, th I think she uh, 
think she said she it's been hard because she she really loves Good Morning America. She had to give up Good Morning America to create space in her life for God to do something. Um, at our church, we've we've started doing this uh, Wednesday prayer meeting. Uh, we do it every Wednesday, and usually for about fifteen or twenty minutes, all we do is sit in silence. We don't we don't talk. We don't we're not praying out loud. We're just sitting there listening, believing that God's going to show up and say something to us. So these are habits, they're disciplines that we do um, to create space for God to be there. And in Anna's case, the reason why she encountered the Christ was because she was creating that space in her life. She was in the temple worshiping, praying, fasting, and because she carved out that space for God, she was able to recognize and experience the Christ. So that's the, the second mode of spiritual behavior. And then the third mode of spiritual behavior that we see in Simeon is being led by the Holy Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit. And like I said, this this isn't necessarily sequential, but in some ways this is this is what we all want. If we can reach that point where we're really led by the Holy Spirit, that's what we all should want. So again, we see this three times in Scripture. It says the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. He was moved by the Holy Spirit and went into the temple courts. So clearly he had a, had a sensitivity to the Spirit. The Spirit was on him. And at, the, at this time it was pretty unique. God's Holy Spirit wasn't just for everyone back then. It was, it was more limited. It was for um, unique circumstances. Uh, but now the Spirit's available to all of us. Uh, now the Spirit is something that every Christian has access to. So in John chapter 16, uh, before Jesus is crucified, he says to his followers, it's actually better for you that I'm going. Even though I'm, I'm here, God in the flesh, it's better for you that I'm leaving because when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. I'm going to send my advocate to be with you. So it's better. The Holy Spirit is who we have instead of the physical, bodily Jesus. Um, and Luke's sensitivity to the Spirit uh, is kind of, it makes sense actually. And when I was thinking about Simeon, uh, I started to think, well, Luke is also the one who wrote the book of Acts. And when you read Acts, it, it doesn't make sense apart from the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts really, it, it doesn't make sense if you take the Holy Spirit out of it. We, we can't make sense of the early church. Uh, we can't make sense of how we became what we are apart from the Spirit of God. We, we have this group of 11 guys scared, locked up in a room, the Spirit comes in them, the next day 3,000 people believe. That's not a normal occurrence. That's, that's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, um, it says, Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. So all of us, all of us have access to the Spirit. It's no longer something special and unique. By, by virtue of you being a Christian, you have access to the Holy Spirit. Uh, but for many of us, the Holy Spirit just isn't part of our spiritual lives. Uh, the Holy Spirit is kind of the, the silent, silent partner of the Trinity and doesn't play any active role in our spirituality. Uh, I've been reading quite a bit uh, this past year about the Holy Spirit, and not just reading, but actively pursuing the Spirit. And uh, I read this a few weeks ago uh, from Richard Lovelace, who wrote a kind of a classic. It's, it's about 35 years old now. It's kind of a modern classic. Uh, the Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, an Evangelical Theology of Renewal. 
And listen to what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says, The failure to recognize the Holy Spirit as personally present in our lives is widespread in in churches today. Even where Christians know about the Holy Spirit doctrinally, they have not necessarily made a deliberate point of getting to know him personally. You may have occasionally experienced you may have occasional experiences of his reality on a hit and run basis, but the fact that the pronoun it is so frequently used to refer to him is not accidental. It reflects the fact that he is perceived impersonally as an expression of God's power and not experienced continually as a personal guide and counselor. A normal relationship with the Holy Spirit should at least approximate that of the Old Testament experience described in Psalm 139. A profound awareness that we are always face-to-face with God, that as we move through our life, the presence of His Spirit is the most real and powerful factor in our daily environment. That underneath the momentary static of events, conflicts, problems, and even excursion into sin, He is always there, like, a, like the continuously sounding note in a beso ostinato. And I, I don't know if you've heard that term before. It's a musical term, and I, I just love the metaphor. Uh, the, the beso ostinato, it's, it's uh, Latin for obstinate bass. And uh, if you're familiar with music, that's the, the melodic undertones, the bass line that plays consistently under a piece of music. Uh, so you're almost unaware of it, but it's the, mel- it's, it's the melody driving the music. And he's saying the Holy Spirit is like that, always playing in the background. And when we, our ear is attuned to it, we hear it. We're aware of it, always playing. If you fail to connect with the Holy Spirit, we're literally saying no thank you to, to the gift of the advocate. We're saying no thank you to the person that Jesus sent in his stead. And we're missing out on the most powerful resource available to Christians. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us. So the spirit that physically, literally raised Christ, that power is in us as Christians through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is there. The Holy Spirit is here right now. We just have to be attuned to his presence. So those are the three modes of spiritual behavior. Uh, obedience to, to the law, uh, obeying Christ's command. Uh, number two, the practice of spiritual disciplines. Number three, being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, and those three spiritual behaviors are what brought the characters to the temple. But what about the message? What was it that was being said that is so important that it's recorded for history? Uh, so first, Simeon takes the baby and, and says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And this, this isn't necessarily... New content. This is kind of, if, if we just were to start with Luke and read from the beginning of chapter 1 to where we are now, this is kind of what we'd expect to hear. This is what um, the angel said. This is what Elizabeth said. This is what Mary's own mouth said. This is what the shepherds said. They said things like, he will be great. He will sit on the throne of David. He's the son of God. So this is more or less what you'd expect to hear. 
But then Simeon moves on and has a message directly to Mary. And this is the part that's a little bit more shocking. Um, This is a reality check that foreshadows the things to come. So he turns to Mary and he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And he's not talking about like an emotional journey that an individual goes on. Not saying Jesus is going to take us to, to mountain highs and valley lows. He's saying many people in Israel will fall because of this child. And many people will rise because of this child. And the word he's using here for rise is the same word for resurrection. In fact, almost everywhere else in Scripture when that word rise is used, it's translated as resurrection. So it's rising to new life. Someone who is dead rising to life. So Simeon is saying this child is destined to cause the downfall of many in Israel, but also to cause the rising to new life of many as well. So Jesus is, this, this child, according to Simeon, Jesus, he's polarizing. This is, this is a dichotomy. This isn't just kind of a spectrum that you fall on somewhere. It's two extremes. To some, it's going to be a downfall. To some, it's going to be rising to new life. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. And this word sign, it, it doesn't mean like a, a symbol or a metaphor. The, the word here is more like signs and wonders. The word sign is something that is outside of uh, what commonly occurs in nature. It's literally, it's, it's a miracle. Uh, the word sign here, it's a miracle. So um, the, the actual definition, if you look in the, the, the Greek dictionary, the lexicon, it says um, of miracles and wonders by which God authenticates the men and women sent by him or by which men prove that the cause they are pleading is God's. So you can see there's kind of like a paradox here a sign that will be spoken against. Simeon's saying, this, this child, this miracle, this sign of authenticity, proving God, this sign is going to be spoken against. He's going to be contradicted. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be denied. It's a paradox. This sign of God, this miracle of God, is going to be rejected and spoken against. So this child is destined to cause the fall and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And the word heart in this context is a little bit different than how we use it. Uh, Heart denotes the center of both physical and spiritual life. So Jesus is going to uncover. He's going to lay bare. He's going to reveal what's hidden in the depths of man. Uh, And this wasn't really like, this wasn't the prevailing purpose of religion back then. Uh, And this certainly wasn't the expected function of a king. This was something new and something different and probably a little bit unwelcome. Um, The depths of my heart, the secrets of my heart, I would prefer to, to leave those uncovered. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be signed that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then this is, he's looking at Mary, he's speaking directly to Mary. 
and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And that doesn't sound good, right? That, that doesn't sound pleasant. A sword will pierce your own soul too. And up until this point, Mary's been told some pretty nice things, right? Uh, the angel says, Greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women. Mary says about herself, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. And now here comes Simeon saying, A sword will pierce your heart. That just doesn't sound good. And the uh, the word soul here is is the word psyche. Um, so it's it's really kind of an all encompassing term. It means soul. It means heart. It means mind. Um, literally, it means like the breath of life. Um, again, the the Greek lexicon says the vital force that animates the body. So this is this is the breath of life. This is the essence of who she is. And Simeon is saying that thing in you, that essence of who you are, that's going to be crushed. Be prepared. Your psyche, your soul is going to be pierced by a sword. So why? Why Why is Mary's soul going to be pierced? Well, because she's destined to watch her own son be pierced, right? She's destined to see his hands pierced, his feet pierced, his side pierced. Mary's going to be crushed because she's destined to watch her own son be pierced. As Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we will be healed. Jesus is going to cause the fall of many and the rise of many because of his death, because his death has drawn a line in the sand. Jesus is a polarizing figure. Uh, if you've been reading along in our, our commentary that, that we gave, uh, the William Barclay Study Bible, um, about this passage, he says, Toward Jesus Christ, there can be no neutrality. We either surrender to him or we are, or we are at war with him. There, you can't be neutral. It's, it's one or the other. Jesus' death and resurrection is both salvation and condemnation. The fall of many the rising of money. And when I, when I was uh, reading this and studying for this, I kept thinking about John chapter 3. Um, we all, probably most of us know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then going on from there, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So far sounds pretty good. Uh, but he goes on, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Life is, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The fall of many and the rising of many. The thoughts of people's hearts brought to light. The death and resurrection of Jesus confronts all of us. There's no room for neutrality. Jesus Christ 
whether we like it or not, is a polarizing figure. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. By his wounds we will be healed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a a good and loving God. God, we thank you that uh, you loved us so much that you paid the price for us uh, with your own body, with your own blood. Uh, You were pierced for our transgressions. And God, as we uh, look at your word today and just see see the different modes of, of spiritual behavior. Uh, God, I pray that we would, we would enter into those, God, that we would really do the things that put us in, in the right place, in the right situation to experience you as the Christ, uh, to experience not the fall but the rise, uh, the rising to new life because of who you are. Uh, God, we want to step into the light because uh, we know that when you look upon us, you don't see our, our sin. You see the righteousness of Christ on us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, for, for being here in the flesh. And thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. And uh, God, we just want to be attuned to your presence. Uh, we want to be attuned to you with us and open ourselves to you. God, thank you for the reality of your presence. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.